0: Let's pray. King of the universe, God, our Father, we gather this morning because you are worthy of all praise and honor, all glory and adoration. Father, you are the creator who took chaos and made order. And we've been blessed these last few months to observe you do that same work through the message of Paul to, first, to Timothy in 1 Timothy. It is obvious to us that you are a God that cares deeply for your family and children the world over. You lead in wisdom to draw us together in unity and order so that we might declare your name, the name above all names, to the world around us. This morning we call upon you by your spirit to order our mind, our emotions, and our spirit so that we might focus on worshiping you. We need your miraculous work to unseat us from the throne that we have created for ourselves and we need the work of your spirit to rightly enthrone you as king of our lives. And so we need this time of worship, Lord, to reset our minds to what is ultimately true, that you reign over the cosmos, that you have achieved victory over death and hell through the cross and your resurrection, that you have forgiven us our sins and reconciled us to yourself, and that you will come again to finalize your enthronement over this world. And as we wait, it is apparent to us that this world is still full of chaos, and this chaos rears its ugly head, grasping for any chance at subverting your rule. On this day, after the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, we pause to remember all those whose lives were lost, their families who were forever changed, and all those who worked tirelessly to serve and protect that day and in the 20 years since. Would you join me in a moment of silence? Father, we also need this time of worship and adoration to remind us that this same chaos and evil that operates around us also works within us. As our old fleshly selves fight against the fullness of your sovereign reign in our lives, please forgive us. Forgive us for where we have desired chaos in opposition to your good order. Thank you for your ongoing work of sanctification to cleanse us and renew our minds and hearts and be formed into your image. We pray that in some way, shape, or form, you might similarly grab hold of the hearts of our national, state, and local leaders. We pray that you would do your will in their lives and in their governance so that they might be broken of any pride or hubris that causes them to lead against you. And we pray instead that you would humble them to govern in your good order. This morning, we also pray for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso as they wrestle against famine and drought beyond what we can imagine, even in our drought-stricken region. We thank you for your provision to us that we might co-labor in the gospel with them and we pray that the resources we have provided might be stretched to help the most vulnerable among them. We pray for the pastors ministering in those hard circumstances, that you would give them peace, comfort, provision, and perseverance in their trials. We also pray again for our leaders as they make decisions about working within the wildfires that continue to scorch the West. We especially pray protection for those affected by the Cougar Peak Fire. We ask for protection for the many firefighters that are in the midst, and if possible, for rain to assist their fight. We pray for the many people displaced or in danger of losing their homes. And we pray that these fires among the many disasters and trials facing our world right now would humble us and bring us to our knees in prayer. We continue to pray for our healthcare workers, Lord, that you would give them protection, endurance, and wisdom as they deal with COVID. We pray again this week for endurance for the many educators, administrators, and students themselves who are having to adjust in their school year to deal with COVID restrictions. We pray that you would bring an end to the sickness, death, and division that has been brought with COVID. We long, Lord, for the full realization of your reign of life and light to come to us. And so we pray, come, Lord, quickly. And finally, Lord, we pray for our brother, our elder and pastor, Ryan, as he steps into your pulpit and unpacks your word, the word that you gave to Paul to give to Timothy to give to the church. Please give him your words. Please open our hearts to hear your word as you intended it. As he brings to us the truth and balance of honoring authority and holding authority accountable, we take a moment to pray for the many churches in America, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, that are reeling from or recovering from damage done by unrepentant leaders. We pray for those affected individually, that you would heal their hearts and help them not to lose trust in you. And we also pray in thanksgiving, Lord, that while there may be errant men and women leading many churches that have gone astray, it is even more miraculous that you use errant men and women to lead churches that have not gone astray. Thank you for your spirit that dwells in them and hopefully dwells in us, and your word that guides them and your hand of authority over them. By your spirit, please let our hearts be open to receiving your word so that we might be a church that witnesses to your glory as you use us, sinners saved by grace and held to account by your word and spirit to proclaim your gospel. In Jesus' precious name, we pray, amen. Amen,
1: you may have a seat. And as you're sitting, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll start in verse 17. That's our text for today. As we've made our way through 1 Timothy, here we are, it feels like already, we're finishing chapter 5. We've heard a lot about authority and the responsibility of church leadership in a well-ordered church. And the emphasis, really the whole deal... Paul's whole message is that the type of people who are are leading should be godly. There are elders and deacons who live lives that are worthy of imitation. That well-ordered church is a buttress of truth, and it proclaims the gospel to the nations to God's glory. But what happens when a church is marked by unfaithful leaders who do not live godly lives? Or those who use spiritual authority to take advantage of the people that they should be caring for? What if they use their charisma to grow wealthy? Maybe you're like me and you've been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Or maybe you've heard of many recent examples of leaders who don't just have moral failings, but there's a complete lack of repentance. And then there's cover-ups of their sin. In each of these stories, you can put your finger on a point and you can say that's where the biblical calling to hold that pastor to a high standard of godliness was missed. This does not blame congregations as they're usually kept in the dark. It was a function of that church's poor ecclesiology. These churches were set up to keep authority in the hands of a few rather than the congregation as a whole. So this is why we are very intentional about being Jesus-ruled, elder-led, a plurality of elders, and congregationally responsible. So we're thankful for all of you who are taking ownership and helping us as leaders uh, lead the church. A congregation that knows its leaders will be able to provide meaningful accountability to them. Without meaningful accountability, congregations will continue to follow pastors who are disqualified because they never hear about that pastor's sin. And that sin will poison a pastor's teaching and judgment. And eventually it is found out, and great is their fall. This is not a new problem. Think back to our reading from Acts. This was Paul's farewell speech to the elders at the church at Ephesus same elders that he's talking to in the letter to 1 Timothy. And he warns them. He says, some of you will turn out to be wolves. So keep a close watch on yourselves. Keep a close watch on the flock. Since this is not a new problem, I continue to marvel at the sufficiency of Scripture as it gives us clear instructions on relating not only to elders who do well, but also to those who don't. So the title for today's sermon is Instructions on Relating to Authority Inside and Outside the Church. I'll read our text for today, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. Let the the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. From verses 17 and 18, we gather our first point. Respect and honor elders who labor well. Paul begins his instructions to Timothy on how to relate to overseers in the church using the same concepts we heard about last week in his instructions on how to treat widows. There were widows who were doing the Lord's work and serving well and there were widows who were abandoning their faith. Same idea here, only applied to the elders of the church. There were pastors and elders and overseers who were governing the church well. They were holding their faith firmly, and they were handling scripture well. And there were elders who were devoting themselves to deceitful teaching and creating false holiness. So in the same way that Paul told Timothy that godly widows should be honored, including enrollment in benevolence, Paul tells Timothy that elders who ruled well, or as the NIV puts it, those who direct the affairs of the church well, they should be honored, including pay for their labor. Now, the word honor certainly means respect. It means that if these leaders are modeling godly living and handling the word of God well, then they deserve to be listened to. They can be trusted to continue to labor for the sake of your good. But honor has another connotation here that Paul makes clear. It means payment. Paul isn't saying this because it's a matter of efficiency for the church to have someone on staff as an employee. It's because people who work should be paid for their work. Paul calls two witnesses here to show where he gets the idea that preachers should be compensated. The first is this line about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. This, um, he quotes in full from Deuteronomy 25.4. He draws a principle from Old Testament law regarding the ethical treatment of farm animals, and he applies it to preachers. Now be careful. This is not permission to call any of your pastors an ox or a donkey or any other kind of farm animal. But this is Paul putting the full weight of a scriptural command behind his instruction. Maybe you've heard this before, but in ancient times, they would thresh wheat by having an ox drag something heavy across the grain over a hard surface. This would separate the useful grain from the useless straw and chaff. This was hard work. And the Old Testament commandment said, let the ox eat some of the grain as it's threshing. Let the ox benefit from the fruit of its labor. This principle applies to Christians in all venues. They don't deny the laborer his wages. Paul takes this Old Testament principle and applies it directly to the preacher. That double honor, generous provision, should be shared with the pastor who does the hard work of rightly dividing Scripture that work of separating good teaching that's in line with God's will from worldly worldly ideologies that go against God, that work of teaching week in and week out about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul calls a second witness. These are the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples, and he tells them to eat in the homes of the people they minister to. He quotes Jesus directly, for the laborer deserves his wages. It's part of God's design in the world that those who labor are paid for their work. It's no exception in Christian ministry. So Paul gives the command that it's the responsibility of the church to provide material goods for those who labor for their spiritual good. What does that look like here at Mission Fellowship? We have, <clears throat> we have several members who are on staff. While our text for today is primarily focused on pastors, it has implications for all who labor in our church. And we strive to make sure that their pay is fair for their labor. We use salary surveys to make sure we aren't out of line in what we're paying. Our goal is not to make people wealthy, but our aim is to provide generously for them so that they are able to care for their families and practice generosity themselves. They should be able to live a lifestyle similar to the people that they minister to. We have two pastors, me and Tyler, and many deacons, who do work outside of the church to support our families and to enable us to practice generosity. The labor we do for the church is part of our Christian service. The difference is our service comes from the overflow in our lives and we support our families with the work outside the church, as opposed to those who are on staff who utilize their time that would normally be given to other occupations for the service of the church. So we have some application here already. How are you doing at participating in honoring those who work for you spiritually? In what ways do you practice honor for those who labor in preaching and teaching? Paul's train of thought continues into the next section with a, the next section of our text with another way to honor those who rule well and labor well. In verse 19, Paul says not to admit a charge against an elder if there is only one witness. This is an honor that is afforded to all people, not just elders. But Paul applies it specifically to elders in this situation. A little later Paul says not to prejudge to prejudge means to decide against someone without any reason, or to decide against someone without knowing what is true. Prejudging is something that is very prevalent in our world today, and people in positions of spiritual leadership are particularly vulnerable to it. Let's think about why. We'll continue with our ox metaphor. As the ox treads out the grain, he is bound to step on some toes. The ox may pick a book for Sunday seminars that you wouldn't have picked. The ox may take a position on an extra-biblical topic that is not your position on that extra-biblical topic. They may send emails that aren't the emails that you would have sent. In fact, if we have not stepped on your toes yet, then I just want to welcome you, because it must be your first Sunday. To labor in preaching and teaching is to praise what is praiseworthy and to condemn what must be condemned. For elders to rule well means standing between you and your idols and pointing you to godliness. This is not the most efficient way to make friends. There's a passion that swells up in the heart of a person when you start messing with their idols. There's a heap that comes through their eyes. Ask me how I know. The idolatry in that heart will overflow to find a way to tear down the messenger. When the idolatrous heart knows it can't justify itself, it has to discredit the messenger. Paul, in writing to Timothy and the Ephesian church, knows that the preacher will step on toes, and he wants Timothy and the church to not accept a charge that is made in isolation. Without another witness or more evidence, then it cannot be acted upon. Now there's something worth clarifying here. There's a world of difference between bringing a charge and bringing a question or a concern. As limited men, we, the pastors of this church, recognize that we do not have all knowledge of all things. So we're thankful for a congregation that is full of people with other perspectives and insights. Off the top of my head, I can think of so many times where one of you have graciously come to me and offered suggestions that I wouldn't have thought of, and that has made me better. It's made us better as pastors at the way we direct the affairs of this church and labor in preaching and teaching. Having conversations where we are humble learners is healthy and beneficial to everyone. So none of this should discourage anyone from coming to us with questions. This should encourage you to practice your congregational responsibility, but without prejudging. But what if those concerns or questions bring up evidence for valid charges against a church leader? I'm glad I asked. Paul, <laughs> continues, Paul continues in his argument, and it brings us to our second point. Do not be partial or hasty in honor and discipline. Like compensating preachers, Paul isn't making things up here as he seeks to set the Ephesian church in good order. He draws again from the book of Deuteronomy for wisdom here. We'll turn there. Let's go to Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. Verses 15 through 20. Say amen when you're there. A couple people, a couple more still turning. Okay, Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. That last part explains the reasoning for this law. Why are we doing all this? To purge the evil from your midst, so that the rest shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil among you. God has cared about the godly behavior of his people from the very beginning. See how Paul continues to see fit to take God's law as delivered to ancient Israel and apply the principles that are behind them to the contemporary situation? This text in Deuteronomy is the same as our text in 1 Timothy. Go ahead and go back there now. I'll ask the question again. What do we do if an elder is unrepentant in their sin? We've got 1 Timothy 5.20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Verified charges plus no repentance equals church discipline. The church is not to be partial in its application of church discipline. The same steps apply to every congregant and leader. It's worth a refresher. Matthew 18, Jesus tells us, if your brother sins against you, go to them, tell them about it. If they repent, you've won your brother or sister back. If they won't listen, bring someone else with you. If they listen, you've gained them back. If they won't listen to two or three witnesses, then look on the screen. Next slide. There we go. If he doesn't listen, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The aim of the escalating steps of church discipline is restoration of relationship. What's at risk in it is being excluded from the people of God. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come at the end of time if there is no repentance. This is why Paul and Moses both say the rest will fear. It's not the fear of embarrassment. That's a fear of man that hinders the transparency that's necessary in our lives for transformation. Fear of man is a pride that wants to be admired by others. The fear that Paul is talking about here is a fear of God, a fear that says, that could be me, I could go down that road and be found outside of Christ. I could miss his eternal rest. That's godly fear that we're reminded of when we see someone who has persisted in sin and then is given over to it. This is what marks you as a child of God. When you confess, you are a sinner and you repent. When you know God's mercy, you can confess sin to one another because you know that's what keeps you close to him and to his people. To be afraid of being known as a sinner is a pride that keeps you from him and his people. Lord, have mercy on us that we would not be given over to our pride. This is the heart of the gospel, to confess your need for a savior, to ransom you from death. Jesus has ransomed you from an eternal death So by confessing your need, by turning away from a life lived for the things of the world and following the will of God, you will live forever with him and with his people. If this is new to you, or even if it isn't, and you wanna know more, or you wanna know how to act on what you know, find me or one of the other pastors after the service. We'd love the chance to answer your questions but what does, it, what does it mean to confess not only your need for a savior, but to confess that Jesus is your Lord? Paul has brought the weight of Scripture to his argument so far, but he's not done bringing witnesses to show how important this is. Still in 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, Paul charges Timothy in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, in the presence of the elect angels, to not prejudge or be partial in the application of these rules. With these witnesses on hand, Timothy will be evaluated based on his fidelity to the command. So now we see two potential errors. The error at one end is to cast such a suspicious eye towards leaders that you assume ill intent, and you hear everything in the worst possible way. But there's another error, and that's to put us on a pedestal. That's not good for anyone. It's partiality, and it allows sin to go unchecked in a leader's life. There's a way to practice honor, even double honor, without putting a leader on a pedestal. Think about those situations where leadership has been abusive, especially in a church context. Can you put your finger on the moment when partiality crept in? When a leader became too big to fall. When another leader sheltered them from valid charges. When sin that should have died in the open was allowed to fester in the dark. There is always a moment and probably several moments when the scriptural command to not show partiality in discipline was ignored. As we consider the various pastors and ministries that we've seen decimated by a refusal to practice church discipline with leaders, I can't help but notice something. In so many of those situations, the priority was placed on keeping the charismatic leader in place for the sake of a worldly measurement of success. They've ignored 1 Timothy's command that they are godly and focused on the fact that they were gifted. They ignored the commandment of 1 Timothy that they have godly character and focused on their charisma. That honor, and even double honor, is placed on someone because of their ability to draw crowds. People are drawn to their skillful storytelling rather than faithful exposition of the word of God. And so they are wrongly protected from valid charges. This does nothing but harden the heart of the leader and set the people up for a fall. At the end of it, God's name and his character that should be proclaimed among the nations is instead defamed. When the church fails to rebuke sinners, no matter who the sinner is, it gives ammunition to the enemy to dismiss the gospel in people's minds. It gives them a reason to shelter themselves from God and his people rather than engage. You can see why Paul calls on such a powerful witness, such powerful witnesses, when he charges Timothy to not prejudge or be partial. God's glory is either going to be proclaimed or defamed. In addition to avoiding partiality in honor and discipline, Paul exhorts Timothy and the whole Ephesian church to not be hasty in appointing new leaders. Let's reread verses 22 through 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. There in verse 22, Paul uses the phrase laying on of hands. To lay hands on someone in this sense is to set them apart for the work of ministry, to initiate them for leadership in the church. Thinking back to chapter 3 regarding elders, they must not be recent converts, and deacons must be tested. This is all consistent with the idea of not being hasty. Paul connects the idea of being hasty with taking part in the sins of others. This isn't because Paul thinks Timothy is going to start committing the same sins as others, but instead, by putting his blessing on someone as a leader or by reinstating them too quickly, he will appear to condone their sin. Failing to punish the sins of another will fail to discourage others from sinning in the same way. By being slow to initiate someone into leadership, he will keep himself pure from charges of prejudging, partiality, and hastiness. Appointing pure men to the office of overseer will keep him pure in the process. Patience in initiation is a safeguard for the church. Look at verse 24 again. The sins of some people are conspicuous. And conspicuous is a great word, but if you're like me, you need to replace it with obvious or apparent as you read it in your head. The sins of some people are obvious. You see them, and you know this person is not fit to be an overseer in God's church. But others have sin that isn't so obvious. Time and the fruit of their life will make it apparent. The context of this verse requires that the judgment actually be the judgment of Timothy and the church. But the church's judgment of the person's sin is just the precursor. The foreshadowing of a judgment of the person's sin that awaits them in eternity if they don't repent. A charismatic person who is skilled at hiding their sin will appear at first to be fit for leadership, but time and the fruit of their life will make their sin apparent. Think back to those situations where the spiritual leaders have used their positions in in an abusive way. Eventually, they got found out. God is set on his church being pure. What is hidden will be revealed. Partiality simply delays what scripture promises. But in the process, God's glory gets obscured. There's another reason for being patient in putting someone in a leadership position is they may have certain sins that need to be worked out, otherwise they're set up for failure. A person who has potential and a sincere heart and an idol in tow needs that idol to die before they're ready to serve rather than be served. Once that idol is worked out, some maturity sets in, that person is ready to be used by God. If placed in leadership too soon, they will use that position to feed their idol. The inverse of verse 24 is also true, as shown in verse 25. If it isn't apparent right away, then time and the fruit of the life of the godly person will become obvious. This patience in appointment of elders is for the protection of the church and its witness to the world. The church needs to hear this over and over again, the godliness of its leaders is paramount. This is not an expectation of sinlessness, but that they should have godly character and that when they do sin, they repent. They point at sin and they call it sin. They don't cover it up. They don't excuse it. This is what a disciple does. And where the leaders go, the people will follow. For those of you who aspire to be an overseer, or are thinking about aspiring, there's something for you here too. Have patience. As godly character grows and develops in you, your fitness for service will become obvious. Ministry, like the rest of Christian discipleship, is about endurance in the faith, through conflicts, through tough things, not spiritual ecstasies and quick success. So have patience in growth and in your examination. God is preparing you as you wait. Sandwiched between Paul's exhortation to avoid being hasty, we have a parenthetical statement to Timothy about his physical health. Now, it's possible that Timothy was avoiding wine for ascetic reasons, following a teaching that there was greater godliness in abstaining, like we see in chapter 4, verse 3, but we don't know that. This verse is, of course, not permission for drunkenness. That is clearly condemned by God. What we do know is that wine was prescribed in the first century medicinally as a tonic, especially for indigestion. In this, we see Paul's compassionate and personal relationship with Timothy. In the midst of pressing that severe importance of appointing the right men to church leadership, Paul can't help but care for Timothy, who's suffering from frequent illness And for a reason unknown to us, he's refusing what was basic medical care at the time. Timothy was bearing a lot of weight in his role, and Paul was looking to care for him in it. Ruling as an elder is laboring, and when it's done right, it's not insulated from the troubles of the world. So I speak for the other pastors when I say thank you to all of you who show such loving care to us and our families. So many of you already get this idea of showing honor without putting us on a pedestal. It's that kind of relationship between the church and its leaders that not only make this sustainable, but most importantly, it brings God glory in our relationships. At this point, Paul continues his instructions on relating to authority, and he moves to authority outside of the church let's reread chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 just to remind ourselves let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of god and the teaching may not be reviled those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Here, Paul speaks directly to a group inside the church who are bond servants or slaves outside the church. Now, since we live in 21st century North America, when we think of slavery, we think of race-based, dehumanizing ownership of a fellow image-bearer type of slavery. Let's be clear, that practice was is and always has been unbiblical and falling far short of God's will. Turn back, I want all, all eyes on this, this passage. Turn back just a couple pages to First Timothy 1. First Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. This is the same letter that we're still reading today. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We have a list of vices here that go against the law of God, and one of them is enslavers, or literally a man-stealer. You might have a note at the bottom of your page that says, those who take someone captive in order to sell him into slavery. This was a practice abhorrent to God, and it would not have been tolerated had it been practiced inside the church. If this was happening inside the church, Paul would have had something to say about it. So how does that fit with what we see over here in chapter six? As we read a text from the first century, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. And slavery had a far, was a far broader category than the way that we use the word today. Slavery took forms across a spectrum in the Roman, ancient Roman world. At one end, conquered people groups were enslaved after a military defeat, or they were kidnapped through piracy. They became property and were sold. In other instances, people could enter into servanthood voluntarily in exchange for a loan. Perhaps they had a debt they could not pay, and in exchange for the funds, they agreed to work for a master until the debt was paid off. Estimates of the number of slaves in ancient Rome vary from 10 to 30% of the total population of the empire. So the church in Ephesus would have been very familiar with the situation of slavery. So Paul's attention turns to giving instructions on how the Christian slaves related to their masters. So here we have the third point for today. Honoring authority leads to God's glory. Paul's argument through our text today continues along the theme of honor and authority. To be under a yoke meant to have someone or something over you in authority. But even when under the yoke of slavery, the Christian is called to honor that authority. In this context, honor is understood to mean obedience in carrying out assigned duties and responsibilities faithfully. This is challenging, isn't it? It's one thing to honor widows who have a reputation for good works or to honor leaders who faithfully preach and teach. But to honor an earthly master, this is a challenging teaching. Now, based on other passages in the New Testament, we know Paul prefers for people to not be enslaved. But for a Christian who found themselves, for one reason or another, in the position of slave, their priority was their evangelistic witness to their master. Paul says that if a Christian slave did not honor their master, they would dishonor the name of God. That's the key of this passage, the end of verse 1. Slaves are to respect their masters, not because Paul thinks slavery is okay. This is not permission for slavery. Instead, Paul's primary concern in his teaching to slaves in the first century church is that their behavior would not dishonor God's name or the teaching. To refer to the name of God is to refer to his reputation. And the teaching is shorthand for the doctrines of the church summed up in the gospel. The cause of Christ has priority over everything in our lives. This text does not minimize or excuse slavery of any variety. Paul is not dismissing the plight of the slave Instead, he points them to their heavenly calling to be ambassadors of Christ. I'll say it again. Paul is not dismissing the plight of the slave. Instead, he points them to their heavenly calling to be ambassadors of Christ. He tells the Christian, the way you relate to your earthly master has the potential to build up the name of God and the gospel or to tear down the name of God and the gospel. Even those at the lowest end of society can proclaim God's goodness. This is because Christians do not look to their earthly circumstances to determine if God is good. We're going to hear about contentment next week. Contentment in this life is essential if we're going to be able to set our hearts on glorifying God no matter our circumstances. But this is what Paul is teaching these first century Christians. And we would do well to apply this to all of our actions. We, too, should be primarily concerned with the glory of God's name and the teaching of the gospel. The cause of Christ has our priority. Verse 2 here says something that shows how Paul teaches that our relationships in Christ transcend earthly relationships. Our social relationships are secondary to our unity in Christ. How else could he call the slave's work good service? The same phrase is translated elsewhere as a good deed. Some commentators translate it as acts of kindness. This is the service of a brother or sister in Christ, not of a slave. This shows the equality of the slave and the master in Christ, who will one day meet the same impartial divine master. While there were societal differences, they shared communion in the same faith. The result of that shared communion should not result in disrespect. Apparently, this was a problem in the church at Ephesus. Instead, Paul instructs that good service is an act of kindness that's given to the fellow Christian for the sake of their good. Paul's teaching here lifts the eyes of the first century slave and to and our eyes to a true calling, truer than the, our position in this life. We carry God's name with us, and our actions proclaim his character. This is true regardless of our age, regardless of our education, regardless of our position in a family or in the church, or our employment. We don't look to our earthly circumstances to determine if God is good. We give honor where honor is due, respect where respect is due. We don't practice partiality, and we're patient in judgment. In all of this, we stand for truth in defense of God's reputation in the world. And when we do this faithfully, the church is put in good order, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is honored. This leads us to our application of our text today. Number one, questions for yourselves. Do you participate in honoring those who labor in preaching and teaching? I talk about this in all of our congregational meetings and any other chance that I get. The way that we use the money that God has given us is part of our discipleship. If you need help getting your finances in line with your discipleship, I or one of the many other members who are skilled in personal finance would love to help you. Our goal is for everyone in the church to be able to participate generously and cheerfully in providing for those who labor for the sake of the church. Secondly, do you participate in keeping the church holy? One of the ways that you can participate is by knowing the leaders of the church. By getting to know us, you'll help us develop into the leaders that God wants us to be. You'll help us stay on God's path. You do this by practicing those steps of church discipline. Remember, church discipline is not only the final step where it goes before the whole congregation. It starts by keeping short accounts with one another, including leaders, Another application point. Do you assume good intent in your leaders or are you hasty in judgment? Like I said earlier, there's a great temptation in the world to assume bad intentions on the part of authority. And I understand that temptation with how many times we hear about authority using influence in abusive ways. but scripture calls us to examine the fruit of our leaders and if the fruit is good, If there are good works, then you can honor them so long as they are faithful. Another application point. As a person who is under God's authority, do you honor other authorities in your life? A big reason that authority is such a big deal in the Bible is that we're all under God's authority. Paul, James, Jude, and Peter all referred to themselves as slaves of Christ. When we talk about Jesus, we don't just talk about him as our Savior, we also talk about him as our King. So when we honor other authority figures in our life, we preach to them about the one who is the King of the universe. He is an impartial master, and he is good no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your word. Even though these words we are considering today were written 2,000 years ago, they are exactly what our church needs to hear. So we pray that the wisdom of your word would sink deep into our hearts and change us. Lift our hearts and our minds to your calling to be your ambassadors. We pray that you would help us to do all of this for the sake of your name and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.